Coming for us to hear the word coming from uh, Reverend Kelly Moore. Kelly is a colonel in the United States Army. He's command chaplain at Tradoc at, at Fort Eustis and is an ordained minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. So our Geneva College uh, faction can have a connection there with, with, uh, with that since that's the college of that denomination. Uh, but more important uh, than that, he is a, a man who, uh, who loves the Lord uh, and the Lord's people. He and Judy have been with us for about, it's about a year now uh, as uh, he has served here. And, uh, and so as uh, he has been ministering, we are delighted to be able to have him minister to us today. So Kelly could come. Thank you, Dennis. It's a privilege to be here. And uh, I have to admit, sometimes when I hear uh, uh, the rank part, if I was on, the, on, on Fort Eustis or some military post and somebody did that, I'd say, say that's chaplain to you, soldier. Because uh, it's been our privilege to be uh, serving in the military uh, as a chaplain for the last close to 29 years, getting towards the end, end of that uh, time and phase of our life. So, but appreciate very much uh, the privilege to be here. We've been here about a year stationed at Fort Eustis, but we've been actually affiliated and known about this congregation for about the past 18 years. Uh, we're from Colorado, but uh, the military moves us around, and it was around 2002 that uh, we moved to Fort Meade, uh, Maryland, and I've had assignments Fort Meade, Fort Bragg, some on the East Coast. And in 2003, somewhere around there, uh, we started coming here as a family to visit Historic Williamsburg. And any Lord's Day that we were here in town, this is where we would come and find to worship. So uh, once a year, especially from about uh, 2005 to, say, 2017, uh, we were often here between Christmas and New Year's. And uh, uh, that was a week that we enjoyed coming. So we've very much appreciated the ministry uh, of, of grace for many, many years years. So there's a very popular children's book. I'm sure many of you have resonated with it before. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. The day starts off for Alexander and is that he he forgot to take the gum out of his mouth when he went to bed. So he woke up with gum in his hair. And as he's going to the bathroom to get the gum out of his hair, he slips on a, a, a skateboard. Uh, when he's getting dressed, his sweater gets into the sink and gets wet. When he goes to eat breakfast, uh, his brothers get a prize in, in their box, and he gets no prize. And Alexander knows right away that this is going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And as, as you're reading it, especially the first time, you keep expecting it to get a little bit better. You know, we have these, these half-hour sitcoms or these movies where even though things kind of fall apart, somehow at the end everything seems to come together and there's this nice warm feel-good story and everybody's happy at the end. But this doesn't happen for Alexander. The day just keeps getting worse. He goes to school, and he's got his clique of friends, and, and one of the friends all of a sudden now demotes him from being friend number one to friend number four. 
and, and then after school, he goes to the dentist, and he's the only one who has a cavity that gets to, has to get fixed. And it keeps going on. Mom serves lima beans for supper. I think even there, I agree with Alexander. A very bad gay has really just turned to horrible, rotten, no good. And so all through, there's this theme, too. I just need to go to Australia. You know, things will be better maybe then. But life, that day just doesn't get better. And the lesson his mom gives at the end of the book is really that some days are like that. Have you ever had it where then some days turn into weeks? And then weeks turn into months? And it just seems like, what's going on with all this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad stuff? This morning I'd like to open up the book of Habakkuk with you because I think the prophet Habakkuk was also kind of feeling that way. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to the prophet Habakkuk, tucked in between Nahum and Zephaniah. And if you will follow along, I'll be reading through verse 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And I'm, I'm going to just pause here for just a second, please, because in, in your Bibles it may, may have a little caption. Maybe you, you don't have a Bible that gives those captions, but it says Habakkuk's complaint. All right? I'm going to add a little bit to that because in, in the Hebrew, about everything in here is in an intensive case. And so uh, you could almost pencil in there, this is Habakkuk's intensive complaint. So as I read it, I'm going to read it a little bit more intensive. Then it's not going to be, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? That's, I, I just want you to know up front, that's not the picture. That's not what Habakkuk's doing. So in verse 2, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? You will not hear or cry out to you violence and you won't save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong destruction violence there before me strife contentions they arise the laws paralyzed justice never goes forth the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted Can you imagine living in a time when things don't make sense? And it getting a little bit under your skin sometimes when it just doesn't stop? Has it ever created a little bit of anxiety and trouble for you? Just to turn on the news and hear what's going on today? 
I think Habakkuk had some of these anxieties and angst within him. It was a time of uncertainty. It was a time where the forces of evil just seemed to be like a large cloud coming and getting ready to envelop them and choke them. Closing in on the righteous. I believe this is how Habakkuk felt. Let's provide just maybe just a little bit of context before we go further. Habakkuk was prophesying. About the time of Jeremiah, they were contemporaries. If you remember Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet that judgment is coming. And not always a very uh, well-received message in, in the day. It was pre-exile for Judah, so probably around 640 to 630 B.C., a hundred years after the northern kingdom had been taken away by Assyria in 722. And so the question, though, that Habakkuk is coming up, though, with is how can God... He had his theology, you might say, in a certain way. God is holy and righteous and just. And how do we reconcile this with all the wrong and wickedness that we are living in the midst of? How long is God not going to hear us? How long is God not going to save? How long is God not going to care for us? There's complete, doesn't he see that there's complete social and cultural corruption, morally, politically, judicially? Why isn't God doing something about it? Well, maybe it's just me, but I've somewhat felt that way myself at moments in these last few weeks and months. I mean, between, I don't know which one it is I'm supposed to be more anxious about, the coronavirus, the race riots, the squatters in cities setting up no police zones, police targeted as enemies, historical statues being vandalized and torn down, the woke and cancel culture being in overdrive, or legal decisions just just want to make me scratch my head. I don't know, I, I just have to take a number of which one I'm supposed to be more concerned about, I guess, today. So he gives his complaint. And God has an answer. Continuing in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you had been told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth... To seize dwellings not their own, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth for themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand." At kings they scoff, at the rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. 
Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. God responded, but not exactly as Habakkuk perhaps had hoped or thought. God was hearing. God was saving. God was caring. But just not as Habakkuk had expected. He's sending another people to come and judge them. Habakkuk thought things were bad. And God told him things are going to get worse. They're going to get real bad. And that he had probably better brace himself. And there's a reminder here that the prophet Isaiah had preached years before, and I'm sure Habakkuk had heard these words. When God said through the prophet Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so were my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For some reason, I get into this sort of thing that I think God should work things out according to the way that I think things are supposed to work and order them the way that I think things are supposed to be ordered. And when that doesn't happen, it's me that's out of sync, not God. And that's kind of the reminder that God was giving Habakkuk right here. You know, I've heard this thing about, well, we can... We can, uh, God's a big God. He can take a lot of things. But I do think we need to be careful when we come to him in our pride and in our arrogance. Yes, he can. He can, and he wants to hear all of our, our sorrows. He wants to hear our pains our, from our hearts. But he is still God. And he will still work according to his time, his ways, his plans. So I'm going to go on and just kind of paraphrase, so I'm not going to read the whole book. But then as you go through Habakkuk, there is this dialogue. We saw the first part where Habakkuk just intensively comes in with his complaint. We come back where, where God kind of, in a sense, rebukes him and at the same time tells him, just because I'm not working the way you expect me to work doesn't mean I'm not very much active and, and concerned and involved in what's going on in your world. So Habakkuk comes back with a second complaint, not the hothead as he was in the previous uh, few passages, but more of an appeal to God's mercy. More now he's internally wrestling with how to reconcile God's character with God's actions. And I'm going to go down now actually to God's response again, which is kind of interesting because Habakkuk comes and Habakkuk is almost demanding you answer me on my terms. And God says, I'll give you an answer, but it's going to be the answer I want to give. It's not us pulling God's string as far as him to answer us because we need an answer here. I, I enjoy the 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 passage in, in Exodus as well, 
3 and 4, when, when God calls Moses to go back to Egypt, and Moses is, is giving all of these excuses as why he should not do this, and why he's not really adequate and able, and, and Moses uh, asks God questions, and God doesn't answer his question. But what does God say to Moses? I'll be with you. That's the only answer you need. That's what you really need. I don't, I don't need to sit here, Moses, and go through this whole list of questions for you. I mean, I could. But the answer is, I will be with you. So the question, Moses, is, are you going to trust me that I'm capable of doing what I'm setting out to do? And really, that's the same answer he gives Habakkuk right here. So in chapter 2, God now, in verse 2, And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it, for the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. And here's the phrase that's quoted three times in the New Testament. You know, in, in the military, when they want us to learn something, you know, they'll, they'll state something and they'll say, and then they'll state it again. And any time you foot stomp, that's, that's, you know, soldiers, oh, okay, wake up now. That's, what, that's important. I need to remember that. And, and so this next phrase is God's answer to him, and it's repeated for us three times in the New Testament. The righteous will live by his faith. How many times have you read that? How many times have you mentally said that? But sometimes the most simplest thing is not the easiest thing for us to really get, is it? Simple does not equate with easy. Because we have this whirlwind and tornadoes and storms going on all around us. Distracting. Or really, maybe honing and fine-tuning. Or even, you know, if, if, if I'm in my wood shop and I, I want the wood to be just right, I'm going to sand it down and get rid of the splinters and get rid of, of, of any of the, the things that are not going to make this, this whatever it is I'm trying to create look perfect. Perhaps we're just getting a high-grade sandpaper. The righteous will live by his faith. And let me just, not, not to do a whole sermon, we could have just on faith alone, but let's just consider it for, for just a moment. Faith must have an object. It must have some knowledge of that object, and it must then have a scent 
to yield or concede to that. You know, in the Army, I had a few years where I was serving uh, some, some airborne soldiers. And so if you're going to jump out of a perfectly good Air Force plane, which I'm not sure they make, but if you're going to jump out of a perfectly good, I had to have faith in that object of that parachute. And I had to have some knowledge about it. So that if, when I jump out of there, if that thing doesn't work, I need to know what to do. And I need to be able to react and, and think. So, so it's not, not just blind, just, oh, I'm just going to jump up and go just see what happens. That would be pretty foolish. And so, so, so I do that, and, then I, and, and so then I actually jump out of the plane. All right? Standing here today. Little bumps and bruises, but I'm here. So we have the object God of God is, of our faith. And this is where we grow in our knowledge. This is why our word is so important to us. You know, Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah. You are Christ, the son of the living God. And then just a few weeks later, when Jesus was saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I, this is what's going to be happening. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be punished, beat, suffering. What is Peter, this person who had made this great profession? Not going to happen on my watch, Jesus. No way. I'm not going to let that happen. And, and Jesus rebuked him, said, Satan, get behind me. Because he was still growing in what it meant to trust that God knew what he was doing. And that what he said, you needed to get on board with him and not try to convince him and persuade him that he was doing something wrong. So that knowledge... And with Peter, and it did grow, especially after the resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see a whole different Peter transformed. Why? By getting to know God in a deeper and real way. And so in that real way in which he got out of the boat and walked on water temporarily... It was able to grow, and then he was able to be a great apostle, apostle and preacher of the good news in the New Testament. This week, I was on a Microsoft Teams meeting, and, and there was another chaplain um, serving in Hawaii right now, Chaplain Chul Kim, friend of mine. He's also a Presbyterian Reformed uh, chaplain. He, he said this to statement as we were talking uh, uh, several chaplains over some of the issues of our day. And he says, you know, there's too often a difference between what we think we believe and what we believe. Many times we think we're on target and believe. And then things will come along that will kind of shake our world a little bit. And maybe we've, we sense that anxiety. Maybe we sense that worry. Maybe we, we sense that this is not my normal and I'm not sure I like it. And our faith is challenged. But when faith really takes hold, it transforms us. And we learn not only to accept 
but to rejoice in what God is accomplishing in you and me around the world. And this is why in Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk is able to end up in such a contrast. He starts off this hot head, almost shaking his fist at God, wondering why God wasn't even listening or thinking about what was going on, to saying this, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So Habakkuk's now saying, even though there's complete and utter destruction in our lives, our our livelihood, our sustenance, uh, the olive, the food, the, the flocks, everything cut off. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say, oh, I'll sit back and I'll just accept it. I'll deal with it. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, if you heard me say, oh, if something bad happens to me, I have to say, oh, rejoicing, I've got coronavirus. I didn't say that. I said, though, that because we know and have faith that God is working out a purpose and a plan beyond what we could ask or imagine in this world and is going to accomplish the salvation of his people, of his elect, to the time where he will come and restore all things to himself, we can joy in that, regardless of what our circumstances fall to. God the Lord is my strength, not my 401k. And he's the one who makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Recently I was writing a journal, some of my time in the chaplaincy. And I went back to deployments that I had uh, to uh, Somalia, to Haiti. And I could throw in even more recent. I haven't gotten to those in my journal of Afghanistan, Iraq. And, and, you know, sometimes when they're in the middle of something, you don't see it as clearly. But I was able to step back, and I'm like, you know what we're experiencing? It's nothing new. It's only new to us. When I went to Somalia, it was chaos. There was violence. There was just all sorts of discord and injustice. When I went to Haiti, I saw the same thing. When I went to Afghanistan, I saw the same thing. When I see go to Iraq, I saw the same thing. Earlier, there was a prayer for our brothers and sisters in China. You think life And the history of church life and Christians is not one of difficulty and suffering. It's a great time to grow in our faith, isn't it? It's a great opportunity 
for God to get out that sandpaper on us and just smooth out some of those rough edges of our faith. To reconcile what we think we believe with what we believe. A time to let the Holy Spirit transform our minds. One of my old bosses used to say, you know, you win some, you lose some, and some get rained out. He was a big baseball fan. You win some, you lose some, and some get rained out. But you've got to suit up for all of them. We're going to have some good days. We're going to have some bad days. We're going to have some days that get rained out. But what would it look like if we suit up for every one of them with faith in our Lord and assurance and knowledge of what he is working in and through us and what he's accomplishing each day in the world? Real faith that will rejoice and have joy in the strength, not naively, not superficially, but in an awareness that the God who shakes the nations is working out his redemption, his salvation for his chosen people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prophet Habakkuk, for a message that sometimes is not always easy for our ears and less even so for our hearts. For I know I'm prone to to anxiousness. I want to see right. I want to see things as I would want to see them. But Lord, may you straighten our vision. Give us lens to see through your eyes. To hope in your strength. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.